How's everybody doing? Good, man. I love it. This whole weekend, people have been like rowdy. I love it. Um, hey, I don't say it enough, but I, but I should. I don't know if you guys know, we make all the videos you guys hear, see here. So that video you just saw, uh, I say we, Spencer, who works here, makes all those videos that you see. Um, but he does a phenomenal job, right? I mean, like they're really amazing. It took a whole lot of prayer and fasting on his part to actually turn that water to wine at the end of that video. So... Uh, <laughs> I think he should. <laughs> I think he should be commended. That was. Uh, I sh- probably shouldn't have told that joke. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm really, really glad you guys are here. If you are new to the church, or if you're new to the faith, or maybe you're not a Christian at all, but you somehow uh, wound up in this building today, really, really glad you're here. Um, I believe we're kind of getting into what we uh, are the most comfortable doing here at the church. We're going to start a one of the gospels, the Gospel of John, which is the fourth book of the New Testament, and um, written obviously by a guy named John. Uh, about his time that was spent with Jesus Christ. He was one of the 12 disciples. And we're going to go line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this entire book, which will take us a while, probably some in the neighborhood of seven, eight months that we'll be in this book. We'll be in it um, for a while. But this is where I feel comfortable. This is where I feel like uh, our church really um, excels is in just presenting the word. So um, what I hope to do, if you've never been with us, this is what I always do, but if you're new... What I hope to do is present to you an idea, this, and I hope to teach a lesson uh, for a little bit on this and revisit this idea, okay? Very simple. And we're only going to do about half of the first chapter of John, which you should have got a notes handout. And uh, if you didn't, it's on version. That's the free Bible app on your phone. All the notes and all that stuff are on there if you want to look that up. But this is what I want to present to you guys today and hopefully uh, cover this, this, this thought. It's this. That Jesus Christ, and if you're not a Christian here, this may be very new news to you, that Jesus Christ offers us a path of contentment and salvation that greatly contrasts what the world offers. They're very, very different. The path of the world and the path of Jesus Christ are very uh, uh, counterintuitive to each other. They're very, very different, okay? And so we're going to be talking about today a little bit about the beginning of Jesus coming into humanity and, and God literally being incarnate, which means made in flesh, and walking around with humanity, all right? Now, a couple of quick things about this book of the Bible. If you've never read the Gospel of John, like I said, it's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It was one of four Gospels, most likely written when John was an older man. So he was one of the original 12 disciples. Uh, we know that he was one of the younger followers of Jesus. He was called the beloved uh, disciple. And in fact, Jesus loved and trusted John so much that when Jesus ascended into heaven, he entrusted John to watch Mary, Jesus' mother. So he and Jesus were very, very close. The only disciple that died a natural death, the other ones were martyred, and one, of course, turned his back on Christ and hung himself. But the only one who died of a natural death wrote uh, several books of the Bible. His two most famous are this one and the book of Revelation. But he wrote this when he was an older man. He wrote it in a city called Ephesus, which you've ever read the book of Ephesians. Um, That was to the church in Ephesus. And this was written from Ephesus, uh, where John was staying uh, temporarily. And this letter was intended to be read not by Jews or even believers. This book of the Bible was specifically written to Greeks and Romans who probably had never heard of Jesus. So this book is very unique in the fact 
that is highly evangelistic, which means it was written to be a witness for those that don't know Jesus yet. And so this book is very different. If you are a believer in here, this book of the Bible, it's my favorite gospel. I go back and forth. I love Matthew a lot too, but one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible. It's a great book of the Bible, and it's great every time I read it. But if you're a non-believer in here, or if you're a new believer in here, this is probably the best book of the Bible for you to start in. A really, really great book of the Bible. So the purpose of John is John wanted to present material to help non-believers see that Jesus Christ is the answer. I put savior, but ultimately the answer, and we'll get to that here in a second. And so if one wanted to sum up the gospel of John, which is what I, I tried to do, in one simple phrase, the world would say, show me and I'll believe, seeing is believing. John would say the opposite. Take a leap of faith and believe and you will see God you will start to see God work in your life. You will start to see miraculous things. You will start to see uh, supernatural things in your life, but we must believe before we see. So he had it backwards to what the world would say. So what John is going to do is he's gonna present signs of Jesus's power, miracles that support that Jesus is God, He's gonna show the historical significance of Christ. You know, Christ, the historical Christ was on earth for 33 years. He's gonna talk, talk about the historical significance of Christ. And he's gonna present the only means for humanity to be saved, which is Jesus Christ. That's gonna be his main objective. Now, John, like I said earlier, was an eyewitness. He was an eyewitness and John wrote this gospel so the Holy Spirit could produce faith and people that had not been eyewitnesses. They did not see Jesus face to face. They didn't walk with him, talk with him, and study under him like John did, but he had to present evidence to people that had never met Jesus personally, that Jesus was everything he said he was. So what John was essentially doing was he was saying something that other great authors would echo centuries later, guys like C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell, he was essentially presenting the question or, or the, 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 the problem or the issue that we have to determine who Jesus is. And he can only be one of three things. He must either be what he says he is, God incarnate, the Lord, right? Or he has to be a pathological liar because he walked around saying he was the Lord and he was God, or he must be crazy. So John begs the question, is he Lord? Is he liar? Is he lunatic? And again, C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell eloquently put that in different works that they had written. Okay, so before I pray and before we get into this, um, if you've never been to this church before, uh, uh, sometimes, well, I hope all the times, we're, we're very real and we're very straightforward and we'll be very real and straightforward today. And also I didn't preach for like a month. So it's like, I've got all this like preachiness built up in me. So some of that may come out today, right? I don't know if it's a, don't applaud me yet. Uh, um, so I, I guess what I'm asking of you is, is let's, let's put on our thick skin. Let's put on our big boy and big girl pants. And, and um, we're just going to be adults in here today. Okay. And uh, listen, something else. I'm going to get on a side note. Don't get don't get condemnation and conviction confused. What I mean is Jesus didn't come to condemn, but he came to convict. And there's a difference. He, he didn't come to put us down, but he came to expose the darkness in us so we could change it. That's what he came to do. And man, right out of the gates, John chapter one, we're gonna talk about those things, okay? So I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna do my best, guys, to deliver only the first half of chapter one, verses one through 18. And um, 
We'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Lord Jesus, God, I just want to thank you. Lord, I thank you so much for everyone in this room. God, I, I love this church. God, I, I love it, Lord. And I know if I love it, I know you love it so much more. And you love the people in it so much more. So, Father, I just pray that you bless us today, God. Lord, bless me as I teach your word. God, uh, bless those that hear the word and help us, God, to receive it and apply it and to grow. Jesus, we pray for every single church in our community, God, bigger ones, smaller ones, everything in between. God, we pray that you bless the leadership, bless the congregations. God, help your kingdom to grow in our city, Lord. We don't care about our individual church brand, God. We care about your name and we care about your kingdom. Father, we love you, God. Be gracious with us and merciful with us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter one. I'm gonna read verses one through five. If you have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to read along with me. If you don't, um, I'll, I'll be reading it out loud so you can follow along. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, if you're a Bible scholar in here, or if at the very least you just read the beginning parts of Genesis 1, right? Which most people, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard in the beginning God said, let there be light. So the intro of, first, of, of John chapter 1 sounds a lot like the intro of Genesis 1. But we're not dealing with two creations. We're dealing with two beginnings. In Genesis, we're talking about the beginning of time as we know it. And in John chapter 1, we're talking about the beginning of Jesus' time, God being incarnate and put on planet Earth, another beginning. So the central focus of John chapter 1, verse 1, is the, uh, uh, the uh, eternality or the eternity of Jesus Christ. So like the Father, Jesus has always existed. So Jesus wasn't created. He, in fact, is the creator. The fundamental belief of Christianity is that Jesus is God. And he wanted to make that clear right out of the gates. So if he's God... Why does John refer to him as the Word? That's different. Now, this is actually really neat. The first reason why John referred to Jesus as the Word is the Jews would often refer to God in such terms, which basically meant that God is the ultimate authority. He is the final say-so. He's the Word, right? He is it. So they would refer to God in that way. So when John calls Jesus the Word, the Jews that would read this would say, oh my goodness, John is saying that Jesus is God. Now, to all the Greeks and Romans that would be reading this, the word logos, that word logos is what it means, that would mean the bottom of all reason, all philosophy, all practicality, all uh, logical thought. That was the word. So the Greeks and Romans were always looking for the word, logic, reason, practicality. And what John was saying to the Greeks and the Romans is, all of the answers you've been looking for in philosophy and reason and logic is Jesus. He is God and he is the definitive answer. All of that understanding can be found in the fact that God has come to earth in Jesus Christ. So John allows no room for doubt. 
In John's time, there was a, a, a train of thought called Gnosticism that was just kind of being birthed and starting to grow up a little bit. And Gnosticism comes from the word gnosis, which means like a secret knowledge that's hidden within us. So if we dig deep enough within us, there's this secret knowledge that we can find. I think there's actually a book called The Secret, right? That there's this secret knowledge we can find that we will have these answers. And what John was saying is, there's nothing inside of you that's good. In fact, the Bible says that. Apart from God, there's nothing in us that's good. The answer is not found in you. The answer is found in something outside of us that is the one true God, and that one true God is Christ. And so in the world that we live in now, guys, and all you have to do is just like turn on your television, read the news, just open your eyes a little bit. Gnosticism, universalism, and atheism are blowing up in North America right now. In fact, the fastest growing group of believers are actually non-believers. And so this group is growing up big time and there's a lot of momentum growing up under these different kinds of thought. And so if these things are getting increasingly uh, uh, big, Christians must become increasingly knowledgeable on what we believe. Guys, this is my first mean thing I'm gonna say this morning. It shouldn't be a big deal if we are followers of Jesus to read this book. Men didn't die and go through awful things to get these words on paper so we could have it so available and not read it. If we are followers of Jesus, this needs to be something that we pick up and read and we have to know what we believe. Amen. Okay. And so, G, uh, so John reemphasizes Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel writers, John tells us that Jesus was there during creation, that he participated in creation. Now, this is actually mentioned twice just in this little intro that I read, because at the very foundation of Christian thought is the belief that Jesus is the creator, that God is the origin of all life. Again, that is at the bedrock of the Christian faith, and John just wants to make that exceptionally clear. Another thing John talks about, and it's a word that comes up a lot in the Gospel of John, is the word life. Now, the Greek for that is zoe, and it's said over 30 times in the, in the Gospel of John. And what he talks about life a lot, because there's three different ways that Jesus has given us life. The first one, now we know that Jesus is the creator, right? Because John said that. Jesus, the creator, gives us physical life, which means all of you in here, which is everyone, who have blood coursing through their veins, breath coming in and out of their lungs, uh, uh, neurological uh, signals shooting all across our body from our brain, that comes from Jesus, the creator who created us physically. We have physical life because of Jesus. We also have spiritual life because of Jesus. Jesus, the redeemer, the one that died on the cross is responsible for us having spiritual life. And then Jesus, the savior that also died on the cross provides eternal life for us. So physical life, spiritual life, and eternal life all comes from Jesus Christ. And this life that Jesus gives us is what John says is the light of men which is a direct contrast. He's saying there is a way if we go towards Christ and accept Christ, that we become the light, that we have this light in us and that's what gives us life. The other contrast to that is the way of the world that produces no light, therefore produces no life and we are dead. So these very contrasting paths. So essentially John is talking about this, that the incarnate Christ, God made into flesh that came to earth, 
came to bring us hope. That God was made flesh to bring a message of hope to an extremely confused world. He said that the light shines in the darkness, and when the light shines in the darkness, it brings clarity, it brings peace, it brings comfort. And so God sent his light into the world, but mankind didn't understand it, it couldn't control it, it couldn't grasp it, but it also could not overcome it. No matter how dark of an environment the world was and is, when the light comes into it, no amount of darkness can stamp out the light. Okay, let me switch gears here. So John the Apostle, that's who wrote this book, is talking about John the Baptist, okay? And this is what he's talking about. There was a man named John who was sent from God. John came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people and they did not receive him. But to all that did receive him, Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, those who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. And so we have one eyewitness, John the Apostle, that's who's writing this book. And then we have a second eyewitness that is introduced, right? I wish God would have made them two different names, but anyways. So a second eyewitness, John the Baptist, that was also introduced. Now, John the Baptist is a slightly important figure in the Bible. Goes on in the gospels, Jesus says, John is the greatest man that's ever lived. Now, when God says you're the greatest man that's ever lived, like that's quite the accolade. But anyways, so John the Baptist was a great man, an important figure in the Bible. But listen, John the Apostle is not concerned about us knowing John the Baptist. He's concerned about us knowing John the Baptist's purpose and role. Now listen, this is so important, I put it in yellow font, even though it takes the same amount of time. But anyways, I put it in yellow font. Listen to me, if you're a Christian in here. A good witness. Now we are called to go out and witness to the world around us, testify to the world around us, share the gospel with the world around us, bring the light into the dark places in the world around us. A good witness does not draw attention to themselves, but to the person or facts that they represent. That means it's not about us. It means it's not about you. It is all about him. Every good work we do, every testimony we tell does not bring us glory. We deflect that and make sure it goes to the Father. A good witness doesn't just talk about themselves. It's not about them. It's about the one they represent and it's about the facts that they represent. So John's purpose was simple, very simple, but extremely important, extremely profound. As Jesus, the word, came to bring heavenly light to humanity, John the Baptist came to pave the way. He was the one that was on ground level with us. And he came to awaken people's attention. He came to prepare a pathway. He was the messenger for the light. He was not the light. The messenger is not the light. And so he was just paving the way for the light. And what we've done 
not just outside of the church, but inside the church. We've tried to create every kind of artificial light imaginable. We've tried to make different things to look at, even in the church. We've done it with charismatic speakers, and we've done it with buildings, and we've done it with books, and we've done it with worship, and we've done it with all these things. We must remember what the true light is. We must remember that it is all about building a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what it is all about. It's not about speakers or churches or worship teams or any of that. It is about the true light, which is Jesus Christ. Now, to some, the true light doesn't mean much. To some, they don't want the light. I'm jumping ahead of myself. But in John chapter 3, it says that people didn't recognize the light because they were in love with the darkness. And then verse 10 in chapter 1 shows that when Jesus showed up, people were so apathetic to salvation that they just didn't care. You ever meet someone who said, man, if God would just come down to earth and shake my hand, I'd believe. He did that. He did it and people still didn't believe. He walked around with people for years and they didn't buy into it. God did come. He looked humanity in the eyes, did a bunch of crazy, miraculous things, raised the dead and even raised himself. And people still didn't buy into it. So whenever people say, just show me, no, because some people are so, listen, some people are so in love with dark things that, that light is completely foreign to them. And so I have to ask, are our eyes, you and me, me and you, are our eyes open to the truth? So many times people say, God, Corey, I'm, I can't find it. I can't find the answer. We're so busy being distracted by iPhones and Facebook and our own self-interests. It is. It's very difficult to see the miraculous going around when you're always looking down. It is hard. It is hard to build relationships. It's hard to have community. It's hard to find what the Lord wants you to do with your life if you've never picked up the Word of God. Most of the answers for the prayers that we seldomly ask, because we don't pray that much either, most of the answers are found written on black and white pages. They're there. And so are we so intrigued with the darkness that we don't even look in the direction of light? Are we so distracted? Christians, I, I said put on your big boy pants and your big girl pants today. What kind of stuff do we listen to? What kind of stuff do we watch? And I know you're thinking right now, Corey, you are so legalistic. Well, let me just quote Jesus. I guess he was legalistic too. He said, everything that we take in through our eyes and our ears contaminates our entire soul. That's what Jesus said. Corey, it's just music. It's just movies. It's just this. Jesus would have said that is foolish because everything that comes in audibly and visibly changes everything about us. So he would say, be careful. Don't focus on darkness, focus on light. And so what John did when he was talking about Jesus, he was explaining that Jesus had come down to make the unexplainable tangible. God inserted himself into humanity. He became visible to humans. He became a, a, a teacher that taught in such simple parables. I mean, Jesus taught on like a first grade level to humanity. And again, sometimes we still don't get it. Jesus was a real person that we could know. He was someone that we could identify with. One of the neatest things about Jesus is he didn't come down as like a rich, slick politician or king or someone that owned a Fortune 5 company or something like that. No, he came down as a carpenter, which in that day was more like an all-around like handyman. He did masonry work and he probably worked on people's homes and he was just a blue-collar guy. And we can identify with that. He was also a God that we could love. He was a God that cried with us. 
The shortest scripture in the entire word is Jesus wept. That was talking about when Lazarus died, a very good friend of Jesus. But Jesus wasn't crying because Lazarus died. He was about to raise him from the dead. That wasn't the issue. Jesus was crying because people's hearts were broken. They were sad. And so we serve a God that cries with us, loves us, that reciprocates our love, that reciprocates our trust. He's personal. And so if we accept him, if we receive Jesus, In the Christian faith, if you're new to the Christian faith or maybe you're not a Christian, when we say believe and receive, it's the same thing. They mean the same thing in the Christian faith. They're synonymous. So when we choose to believe in Christ, we accept him, we receive him. And that means that we are received into the family of God, that we get to be children of God. This is essentially what's called the born again process. If you've ever heard people say, well, I'm I'm, I'm born again. Born again is believing, receiving him, and Jesus regenerating us and changing us from the inside out. Now, whenever people say, well, Corey, I was just born this way, right? We talk about that. Can one be born into a certain sin? Or I'm not even talking about homosexuality. That's a whole different conversation. But people sometimes will be like, Corey, I'm not gonna change. I was just born with this temper. Well, the Bible says to be slow to anger. So that means there's a problem with you. I don't argue that you weren't born that way. We were all born into some level or depth or different kind of sin. The problem isn't how, what we're born into physically. The problem is if we've been chosen to be born again spiritually. So when Nicodemus came up to Jesus in chapter three and said, well, how can a man enter into heaven? And Jesus said, he has to be born again. And Nicodemus didn't get it. He's like, so I have to go back into my mother and come back out. And Jesus is like, no. You've already been born physically once, now you have to be born spiritually. You have to be born again. So God can help us with our tempers and our attitudes and our sexual cravings and our lusts and our greed. We are not meant to live in those things. We're meant to be born again out of those things. Last part. John 1.14, by the way, is probably one of the most pivotal scriptures in the entire New Testament. It's very simple, but extremely profound. Let me read it to you. The word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified, John the Baptist testified concerning Jesus and exclaimed, this was the one whom I said, the one whom I said coming after me has surpassed me because he existed before me. John the apostle now speaking, Indeed, we have all received grace after grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Now, let me change the wording of that. John says, Jesus has revealed God. That's important. Remember that. So, John 1.14, like I said, is an extremely important scripture. Now, again, at the bedrock of Christian faith, we believe, this is fancy terminology for a very simple thing, we believe in the doctrine of incarnation. The doctrine of incarnation is simply saying we believe God became human and lived with us. That's what 1.14 says. God became human, showed us his glory, offered us grace and truth, and tabernacled. Some of your your translations say he tabernacled amongst us. Mine says he resided amongst us. He set up residence amongst us, which means Jesus came down to earth to take the place of the temple. 
In the Old Testament, the temple where they worshiped was the perfect embodiment of sacrifice, of worship, and of righteousness. Jesus came down and he became the perfect sacrifice, the perfect form of worship, and the perfect uh, example of how to live in a way that pleases God. Jesus came to be that for us. And he's more than just a prophet. Going back to our original question, is, is Jesus Christ the Savior? Is he Lord, liar, or lunatic? You can't have it two ways. You can't have it three ways. It has to be one of the three. So like the nation of Islam, Islamic people, and I'm not picking on Muslims. I love Muslim people. But the Muslims believe Jesus is a great guy. He was a fantastic prophet. The problem with that is I wouldn't consider one to be a fantastic prophet if he was a pathological liar. Jesus walked around, said he was God, therefore he cannot just be a prophet. He must be either something more than a prophet or he must be crazy or a liar. So unlike the prophets of the Old Testament that spoke on the behalf of God, whenever Jesus spoke, it was God speaking. Whatever came out of Jesus' mouth was the definitive word of God and absolute truth. And what came out of Jesus' mouth was grace and truth, which showed that our God is a loving God, a kind God, he's a just God, and what he says is immovable. It does not move. So he was more than just a good teacher, he was God in flesh. And so John, the one that wrote this John, inserts a little bit of his story, not much. He just says that we, we have received grace after grace. So John was admitting, I've made a lot of mistakes and I need grace and more grace and more grace, just like all of us do. But what he was referring to is this. Moses brought us the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law, right? God gave Moses the, the Ten Commandments. He came down from the mountain and presented those Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments from Exodus 20 in the Bible are the perfect example of righteousness. If we could follow the Ten Commandments perfectly, we would be perfect people. The problem is this, is God presented a standard to us that is impossible for us to follow. Now, if you're in here and you're not a believer, you would say, why in the heck would God do that? Why would God set a bar that we could never reach? Because here's the thing, we were not created to be perfect, we were created to be dependent on perfection. What I mean by that is this, we cannot achieve the righteousness that it takes for us to be saved. So we accept Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness inside of us. And so when God goes to judge every single Christian that has given their life to him, he does not judge us based on our performance. He judges us based on Jesus's performance. What that means is if we are the best humans we can possibly imagine to be, no matter how good we are, it is never good enough to match what Christ did on the cross. But in God's grace, he fills us with his spirit and the righteousness of Christ overshadows my faults, my failures, and my mistakes. It is not about my performance, it is about his performance. Man, that's exciting, right? And so it says in verse 18 that no one has ever seen God. Now, again, if you're a Bible scholar in here, you'd say, well, in Exodus 33, Moses saw God. Not really. Moses approached God. They would hang out sometimes on this mountain. And he approached God and he said, hey, I want to see you. And God's like, well, that's a problem because if you saw me, you would die. Moses is like, well, I really want to see you. So God says, okay, here, I'll tell you what. Hide behind this rock. I'm going to walk past you. 
and you can see my glory. Basically, you can see like the tail end of me. You can see the remnants of me as I walk by. Now, if you're new to the whole like conversation of what the glory of God is, if God is a fire, the glory is like the smoke. It's not the fire, it's the remnants of the fire. So when we talk about the glory of God, it's like the remnants of God if he were to walk past. So Moses hides behind a rock. God walks by, Moses peeks out real quick. And just seeing the tail end of God, the glory of God, made his hair white, made his skin change complexion, messed him up. And so when he says no one has ever seen God, the hugeness in this, when he says at the end of verse 18, Jesus has revealed God, what John is saying is, until Jesus Christ was incarnate, no one had ever seen God, then God puts himself on earth. Listen, and for 33 years, you could look into the eyes of God. The men and women that followed him, when they spoke to them, they were, spoke to Jesus, they were looking into the face of God. For the first time ever, they could see him and God was revealed. I think it was Thomas that walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, show us the father. And Jesus said, you're looking at him. You're looking at him, it's me. I and the father are one. Imagine the hugeness of this. And imagine if you were reading this letter. Wow, the guy that wrote me this letter, he saw God, he saw him. And so Jesus is the essence of God. And according to this verse, his purpose in coming was to explain. Jesus came to explain the Father to us, to, to uh, interpret where we had misconstrued what the Father had said. And Jesus came to redeem mankind, to purchase us back. And so what we're reminded, just in this opening, in the first 18 verses of John, we're reminded that God is relational. He's not hiding behind some distant planet. He's not far off where he doesn't communicate with us. I know we can't see him, but we can feel him and we can be filled by his spirit. And so Jesus came, listen, this is how relational God is. Jesus came to feel what we feel. Well, God, you don't know what it's like to go through this pain. Do you know how he suffered and died? Jesus, you don't know what it's like to have your family turn your back on you. He had a brother that didn't even believe he was the savior until after he was crucified. Jesus had droves of people walk away and turn their back on him. Imagine how painful that must have been when he's on the cross and the same Roman soldiers that he knew before time had ever existed, that he created them in their, mother, in their mother's womb. He said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Of course he knows what it's like to feel rejected. Of course he knows what physical pain feels like. Jesus came to show us how God would respond in our shoes. Well, Corey, how would Jesus respond to People that hate our guts, well, he addressed that. How would he respond to marriage and divorce? He talked about that. How would he respond to taxation? He talks about that. The problem is, is not that Jesus didn't make it clear. The problem is that we don't go through the, the trouble and the extent to read about it. He showed us what to do. I remember back in the day when always people always wore the uh, WWJD bracelets. I'm like, if you're wondering what he'd do, just read the Bible, he tells us. What would he do? That question has already been answered. There's no point in that anymore. He came to show us what he would do in our situation. Jesus came to set our priorities straight. Much like today, people were materialistic and greedy and power hungry and lustful. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. What you wear, what you eat, your friends, all these things will be taken care of, but seek first, put your priorities straight. Jesus would say, everything else will take care of themselves when you're looking at the Father first. Jesus came to establish absolute truths. 
Jesus said, I came to bring a sword. That doesn't mean war. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword, which means I'm gonna draw a definitive line in the sand. This is righteous, this is unrighteous. That's simple. So Jesus drew definitive lines, absolute truths. But ultimately, ultimately, Jesus came to die. Jesus came, God came to earth. He became man to pay for the faults of mankind, to pay for the mistakes, the sin, the shame, the guilt, the rebellion. That's why he came. He came to set right what we had messed up so bad. That's what he came to do. So let me ask you this, or let me, let me make a statement, a blanket statement. I can say this with a lot of confidence. Every single one of you in this room, not because you're in church today, and whether you admit it or not, I don't care. Everyone in this room is looking for salvation. Everyone outside of this room is looking for salvation. Everyone who lives and breathes is looking for something to save them. Everyone. We're all looking for hope. We're all looking for an answer. Again, the Gospel of John, talking to Greeks and Romans who were known, we still study the works of Plato and Socrates and the great Roman and Greek philosophers who were looking for an answer, that everyone is looking for salvation. Now, the problem isn't are people looking. The problem is where are they looking? So some people are looking right now for the government to save them. And as Christians, guys, and some people get mad at me about this, I'm not a, I guess I am apolitical. I don't, I, I try really hard not to get caught up in it. I've always voted and I've always been engaged in the process to the best of my ability. But look, I'm just gonna be blunt with you. There has been no government in the history of mankind that has ever saved people or ever lasted. Government is not our salvation. And there are so many people, unfortunately, so many Christian believers who are like, if we can just pass this bill, if we can just get this legislation through, if I can just get this man, if I can just get this woman, things will be okay. And over and over again, take out the Bible. Let's just talk about human history. It always falls. It always falls. The longest regime that has ever existed was the Romans, and it was about 450 years. And so we're looking for the government to save us. We're looking for entertainment to save us. Well, Corey, that's dramatic, isn't it? Really? How we dress, how we talk, how we communicate is all based on these entertainers. They jump and we try to jump like them and we try to mimic everything they say and we try to act like them and we're looking to somehow find some kind of hope or fulfillment in this. We go to money. If I just had more money, I'd be content. Or we go to power, if I could just climb up the ladder, if more people just knew who I was. Or we look into inner peace, right? Follow your heart. The worst theology you will ever hear is follow your heart. Jeremiah 17, nine says, do not follow your heart because it's deceptive and evil. We follow the Holy Spirit that hopefully is in our heart, but we don't follow our hearts. We don't follow our emotions. Emotions are wonderful servants and terrible masters. We do not follow our emotions. We do not follow our heart. If you follow your heart, you're gonna cheat on your wife. If you follow your heart, you're gonna quit a good job. If you follow your heart, you're gonna do foolish things. Follow the Holy Spirit, not you. Because there's nothing good in you apart from God. That's what the word says. Corey, you're such a downer. I'm just quoting the word. And again, what we're doing... What we're doing is we're getting condemnation and conviction confused. 
Condemnation is pushing you down. Conviction is shining a light on the darkness so we can fix it, so we can, it can be healed. We look towards charismatic leaders. If so-and-so will just write another book or if I can just let this guy pray for me and touch me, right? If I can just find this certain individual, if I can just travel across country and be at that revival or whatever the case may be, we're looking for salvation in the messenger and not the message. We think it's an intoxication. We think it's in sex. We think it's in sports and media. Corey, there you go, busting on sports again. Can I be a jerk for a second? When East Tennessee puts 156,000 people in a stadium to watch a game, with quite frankly, guys, I have no problem with. But when we pack out a stadium of 156,000 and there are empty churches the next day, we have a problem as a culture. Call me legalistic all day long. I don't care anymore. There is a problem with us. That's all the Auburn fans and, and Alabama fans are like, get them, Corey. All the Tennessee fans are like, nope, we're going to New Vision next week. So, uh, <laughs> we just went there, right? I told you, four weeks of not preaching, man. It's like, now you guys are getting it. Here's the thing, guys, if we're just being honest with ourselves, right? If we're just being honest, we have pursued, and I'm guilty too, I'll be the first to tell you, I'm guilty too. I have tried to find contentment and fulfillment, even as a pastor of a church, in other things other than God and his word. But in our explorations and pursuits and running after every single answer, except for the one that is literally right in front of us, in our pursuits, what have we gotten? I think you'd have to be blind, especially those of you who are older in the room. Let's say, you know, 30 on up, right? I can say I'm 37, so... 30 on up, those of us in the room, I think it'd be crazy to say that we're a unified people, that we're more unified, that this country, that this world is in a better place than it was when we were children. Our pursuits of our lusts, our pursuits of our desires and our greed and us being so narcissistic and us looking for all the answers in all the wrong places, our pursuits have led us to be an extremely alienated, divided people. We're confused people. Guys, and I'm gonna say this in all seriousness, I'm not even joking here. If you would have told us 20 years ago that people would question gender, what is gender? If you would, if you would, if you would talk about that, we would think that was just, what? Now we're to a point where we don't just question gender, we question species. We have people identify as animals now. We have documentaries and television shows. There was a movie, I'm, I'm really reluctant to even talk about this, but I, won't, I guess I won't tell you the name of it, in 2007, there was a movie that came out that was based on a true story about a man that had a horse, uh, a horse ranch and how he had married with kids, had an emotional and physical relationship with a horse. And they made a movie out of it and it got riveting reviews. And they talked about the passion and the beauty of this. And I remember that was 10 years ago. I remember sitting back and being like, my God, this is where we are. We are a confused and desperate people. It's not because the light is not there. It's not because the light is not available. We're not looking for the light. So here's my question, if we're just gonna be honest. Now listen, not just non-believers in here, I wanna ask you believers in here that know the answer but haven't looked in that direction. Is our way working? 
Is it working globally? Is it working nationally? Listen, is it working for you as an individual? Is your way bringing you contentment? The way you're doing things, using your resources how you see fit, searching your dreams, searching your destiny, fulfilling your desires, you going your path, is that bringing you the answers? Is it bringing you the contentment? Is it allowing you to lay your head down at night and sleep better? Is it? If I were to get to the core of every problem I've ever had to deal with in my office, every marital issue, sexual issue, addictions, everything, it's that we have separated ourselves from the light. We have tried to find our answers in everything other than the Word of God and the light. But I want to ask you, is it working for you? Is it? And listen, if it's not, here's the beautiful thing about our faith. The beautiful thing, if you're in here and you're not a believer, if you, if you take a leap of faith, if you're an agnostic in here or even an atheist in here, if I can challenge you today, if you're looking for the truth, if you will bow your heads here in a minute and if you will say audibly and if you're sincere about knowing the answers, God, if you're up there, show me something. I am crazy enough to believe that God will send you someone or do something in your life or there will be some kind of sign that will spark an interest in you to pursue Christ more. If you're in here and you're a believer and you have not been living, you have not submitted to God, that's our problem, guys. We're not submitted to the Lord. We say Jesus is Lord, but we don't understand what that means. When we call him Lord, that means that he's the boss, not us. And many of us love the idea of a savior. We don't like the idea of a Lord. But if we will submit to him, if we will ask God to forgive us, he is quick to forgive, he is quick to restore, he is quick to forget. And if we are willing to change the way we think and act, God will put us on a path where we will find joy and contentment and ultimately salvation. That is here, available, like that, like that. Would you bow your heads with me, please? So as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, here comes my challenge. Again, if you're in this room and you do not know what you believe, I used to be an agnostic, by the way, essentially a universalist. I just thought it was all good. If you're in here and that's your train of thought right now, if you're looking for the truth, I mean genuinely looking for the truth, I want to challenge you. Muster up enough courage to just in an audible voice, no one has to hear you, but to yourself in an audible voice, say, God, if you're up there, let me know, let me know. And if you're looking for the truth, I believe this because Jesus said it, for those who seek, they will find. That if you will do that, I believe God will start to work on your heart. I believe that. If you're in here and you're a Christian, and maybe you've gotten off track, you've tried to do it your way, and you are not satisfied with the results, I want to tell you, you can ask God to forgive you. You can ask God to forgive you of your rebellion. You can ask God to forgive you of your, your lack of submission. You can do that, and he will forgive you instantly. You can take communion, which is all around us, represents the body and blood of Jesus that died on the cross. You can take the elements. You can have communion with God. You can talk with him and you can say, God, help me. I want to change the way I think and act. And God will help you. He will help you. Now listen, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, 
I recently had someone tell me that, that, that they were considering leaving the church because they often felt like they, they just didn't feel good about themselves when they left. They felt that I was condemning a lot. I never want to condemn you because Jesus didn't come to condemn you. I don't want to make you feel bad. I don't want to hurt feelings for the sake of hurting feelings or, or make anyone feel awful about themselves. That is not my goal. I love you. I love you guys so much. But one day, I'm going to have to stand in front of our creator and I'm going to have to give an account. And the account that I'm going to have to give isn't if I made you guys feel good, but if it's, if it's going to be if I taught you righteousness and holiness. And I will never sacrifice teaching you guys righteous and holiness for the sake of everyone just feeling good when they leave. I want God to convict us. I want God to shine a light on the places of our heart that need to be exposed so we can deal with the issues that are inside of us, so we can allow the Father to fix us and heal us and restore us, and we can find contentment. Lord Jesus, God, I love you so much. God, I love this church. I love these people. I know that if I love them, God, I know you love them so much more that we can't even fathom. We can't even think about it. God, I pray that you touch the people in this room. I pray that you touch me. God, if I've been rebellious, if I haven't submitted, forgive me, Jesus, and God, put me in a place of submission. Put me in a place of humility, God. Lord, if there's people in this room who they don't know what they believe, God, start to show them something, Lord. I don't know what it is, God. Start to work in their life. Speak to them. Give them a sign. Give them a person that, that comes into their life that walks with them. Lord Jesus, for all the people in here who believe, God, but maybe we've gotten off track. Maybe we've become arrogant or maybe we've become um, dependent on ourselves more than you. Lord, it's not our performance, it's yours. God, we love you. Be gracious with us and help us, God. It's in your name we pray. The only name that saves, it's in Jesus' name. Amen. Please make yourself at home, guys. There's people up here on my right and left that would love to pray for you. There's communion all the way around. Please make yourself at home.